this is Kat. This is Phoebe. Hello. We are Feminine Chaos. Welcome to our pod. <laughs> We're being really casual today, calling it a pod. To, to say podcast is not cool. It's it's very, very uncool. And I'm extremely cool. So, it takes you know. too much effort. <laughs> are you so tired? Yes, I, I am a little tired. I went to the farmer's market yesterday, which is like the most strenuous thing I do all week. That sounds ridiculous to say this, but it's much more strenuous than like work. No, I uh, I have been to farmers markets. I, I don't go to them anymore because um, number one, they are like an ordeal, and number two, the expectations and reality of a farmers market never match up. This is my feeling as well. This is my feeling as well. So I'm still recovering from yesterday's farmers market, and what farmers market means depends where you live. Where I live, it's like this huge, huge gathering of our neighborhood and many, many adjacent neighborhoods. It's like the big event of the week. It's, it's a lot, you know? So. Oh, God. It's like, uh, you know, in Edwardian or Victorian England or whatever, where like, you know, the season would start and then everyone would go out on Sundays to like kind of walk um, around and around a lake. But really, it was just, you know, the idea is like you see people and you gossip and precisely yes yes that is it that is the thing it is um and it's it's a lot yeah i don't know I, i'm more for the like staying home blogging and podcasting sort of that's your natural orientation and there's nothing wrong with that it is it's how i was wired i have had one really amazing farmer's market experience in my life when i when i lived in brooklyn um there was one day where i rode my bicycle to the mccarran park farmer's market which was not not the big one not Union Square is the big one, I think, the biggest. Yeah, but the and the big one in Brooklyn is usually the uh, Grand Army Plaza, but McCarran would be the more hip one. Yeah, and this was uh, it would have been like two thousand seven, so yes, very mm. really painfully hip. Um, this was peak hipster Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah, I did not live in, but I, I lived in bikeable distance. Um, and I went to the farmers market. I wandered around for an hour. I bought a huge hen of the woods mushroom, and <laughs> then I rode home with it in my bike basket and I made a risotto and I felt like I was a character in a novel and I have honestly I was chasing that high for a long long time trying to have a second mushroom in bike basket experience to match the first is that what's meant by doing mushrooms yes it must be right i would assume that, that when people say doing mushrooms i would assume that that's what they're talking yes about. i mean just check to co compare and contrast that with the one time in my life that i actually did do mushrooms um i definitely prefer the version where you buy a mushroom and you <laughs> ride it home and make a risotto out of it than the one where you hallucinate there are faces in things and they're all looking at you and they're all angry at you and like then they start melting and are they angry at you because they didn't get any risotto possibly I didn't make this connection at the time. I just, um, I, I went, I went into a, an upstairs room, closed the door and, uh, and waited it out <laughs> for like three hours. Um, did not really intend to tell that story, but you know what? That's fine. Now it's out there. Uh, that was the, the one and only time that I did that kind of mushrooms. I have made other mushroom risottos in my life and they've all turned out really nicely. So I'm going to call it a win. That sounds good. Yeah. I was probably very near there when this was all happening because I was also in Brooklyn at that time in 2007. I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in uh, Prospect Heights or Park Slope, one of those. Oh my goodness. We could have crossed paths. Like I might have been at the same mushroom stand, although I don't think I ever have been at the McCarran uh, Farmer's Market. I've been to that park, but not to its farmer's market. It would be really funny if you had a story about how back in 2007 you were scoping out the best mushroom at the farmer's market and then some bitch on a bike like swooped in and took it from you before <laughs> you could get your hands on it. But this is, this is basically like what just happened to me. Not a bitch on a bike, but a, a perfectly lovely woman who was in the show... Um, Baroness von Sketch. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a Canadian sketch comedy show. No, but you have celebrities at your farmer's market then. No, this was not at the farmer's market. This was at this, like, basically the closest place to get prepared food. And since we are renovating our kitchen, do not have a kitchen. Um, I'm, you know, investigating all the places to get the prepared foods. And I ordered a tangerine juice, which was a little bit of a splurge. But I was like, you know what? I'm ready. I'm ready for this tangerine juice. So I ordered it. And the man behind the counter was like, that's the last one. You got the last one. But then it turns out that this um, woman from Baroness on Sketch had actually ordered before me and got the tangerine juice. And um, Oh, no. Yeah. So this was 
it was like a celebrity encounter, but also, um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so disappointing. And like fair cop because she did order first. And yeah. She did order first. I couldn't even be mad. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, I, I support you in having complicated emotions about this experience. I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted and am, ambivalent. Yeah. So on the subject of complicated emotions, this is the best I can do for a segue. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the most recent literary drama. Um, this is... Yes, this is literary drama that is not actually publishing specific this time around. This is going to be just literary drama, like Kat said. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a good one. It's kind of a classic because this one centers on a review. And I feel like it's almost quaint for, um, for writers to get upset about bad reviews. But this one has a very contemporary twist because the review is bad or is it something more than bad? Well, you mean it's is it bad? As in, so what does it, a bad review mean? Is it a negative review? Yes. Or is it yes. a? Um... Well, let's um, let's dive in here. I'm gonna well to begin. Phoebe, do you okay. know who Brandon Taylor is? Well, I am aware of Brandon Taylor because Brandon Taylor has a Twitter, and I know all of our listeners are fascinated by hearing only about Twitter. So I'm gonna try to talk as much as no. So I do not actually follow Brandon Taylor on Twitter. So this is just like I'm aware because people often share his tweets um, that he has a Twitter account that's like sort of witty and um, popular and very like he must be very prolific because I feel like on the same day I feel like I see like five different. Things we must be very online would be my hunch. He is a prolific tweeter, I indeed. Had only the vaguest sense that this was somebody with a non-Twitter presence, and to be honest, I think it might have been when you alerted me to the existence of Laura Miller's Slate review of his novel, his latest novel that I put together. This is a novelist. Yeah, so that's my background on on Brandon Taylor. Right. For the uninitiated, um, a little bit more about Brandon Taylor. I'm going to give the kind of, you know, the bio, the rundown. Uh, Brandon Taylor is a 33-year-old graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. That is a very prestigious MFA program, possibly the most prestigious. The most, the most, I would say. Um, It's the only one that I, somebody outside of the creative writing world, know about. Yes. Apart from like if a friend has done one or something. Mm -hmm, Yes. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, His debut novel was published in 2020. Uh, It's called Real Life. It is, I'm going to just read the blurb. It says, the partly autobiographical book tells of the experiences of a gay black doctoral student in a predominantly white Midwestern PhD program. Okay. Hmm. Then uh, in 2021, he released a second novel called Filthy Animals, set among young creatives in the American Midwest. A young man mm. treads delicate emotional waters as he navigates a series of sexually fraught encounters. How about a not-so-young woman podcasts from her Ottawa <laughs> room? Just kidding. That would be um, your novel. Uh, if Brandon Taylor wrote that, he would be doing cultural appropriation. <laughs> um, so, And then his most recent book is called, oh God, it flew right out of my head and I don't have it in front of me. Late Americans. It's called Late Americans. And um, surprise, surprise, this is also about grad students at a Midwestern university navigating a series of sexually fraught encounters. So what can we say about Brandon Taylor? He uh, he writes what he knows. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> presumably i mean the sexually fraught encounters i I can only speculate but you know but the the grad students midwestern grad students you know so this is interesting to me because i have i am not a fiction writer which isn't to say that i don't have like this the beginnings of many terrible novels on my computer like all writers in all genres do but um and periodically delete them because they're you know not not only unpublishable but like just cringe too cringe but the point is part of what sort of demotivates me whenever I have tried to write fiction is that I feel very overrepresented in my experiences that like the world does not need another you know writer who grew up in New York talking about what that's like or another writer who went to grad school talking about what that's like like specifically humanities grad school you know maybe like you know if it's neuroscience grad school there's less but like literature grad school yeah so it's interesting. Um, he he did not feel 
Um, Any such compunction. No, but that's fine. Okay. Uh, what, so what else you need to know about Brandon Taylor is he is now a very successful novelist. Um, in addition to having published three books within um, five years, which is really quite spectacular, he now is a professor or teacher um, at NYU's Low Res MFA program in Paris. In Paris? Oh. And uh, I'm just going to describe this straight from the website. Over two years, students and faculty convene regularly in Paris for five intensive 10-day residency periods held biannually in January and July. This program costs $33,000 per year. Uh, this is per a uh, friend of the pod, Lee Stein, who knows about these things. Uh, so that would be, I think, $66,000 for 50 days total yeah, of so, instruction. Okay, this, this I do know about because I went to grad school at NYU, but in the part where the version where they pay you, not very much. But, mm -hmm. so, but I was in NYU in Paris, kind of. I didn't go to the NYU in Paris. Like, I didn't attend it. I've seen it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I'm aware, though, uh, very aware of, like, NYU's Paris presence. Right, and this is a thing that exists. And teaching for it, teaching for it, again, represents uh, having achieved a certain level of success. It does and it doesn't. So teaching for it, um, I've taught at NYU, and uh, it doesn't. So it's an interesting thing. So there, the students are paying a ton, right? Some are going into huge, tremendous debt, but... Whether they're personally paying or borrowing to pay or whatever, it's extremely expensive to do anything NYU-related, basically, um, except get their PhDs, which, for what it's worth, I don't know. I don't know what the point is of anything, any endeavors that humans do. But the point is that um, the people teaching them are not getting the tuition. They are getting, like, a tiny amount of money um depending right yeah. but i mean it, you know as is so often the case in publishing um prestige success and financial See, i guess i'm wondering is he an adjunct or is he a professor i mean this is kind of unique to the literary world um where people who do not necessarily have phds um or or whatever you know they get like kind of star writers to teach these courses and that's part of the appeal you know, one of the reasons that you pay all of this exorbitant amount of money to go and study in Paris is not just to study in Paris, but to learn from like the greats. Okay, so here's here's what's relevant, I think, for sorting out what this means. I'm looking at the I just I'm looking at the workshops in fiction at NYU. And um, one of the instructors is Brandon Taylor. Another is Zadie Smith. Another is Jonathan Foer. Um, another is Nathan Englander. These are well-known people. That's what I was saying. Yes. Yeah. So I'm agreeing with you. I, I am agreeing with you with evidence. Okay. To say that you're right. Okay. Sounds good. Yes. Um, so, okay. The other thing you need to know about Brandon Taylor is in addition to having achieved a level of um, visibility and success within the literary world that most writers only dream of, he also, um, his most recent book, which was, again, called... Late Americans. It has been glowingly reviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Harper's Bazaar, among others. Last thing you need to know about Brandon Taylor, because it is relevant to the conversation we're about to have, is that he is a gay black man. So he's not doing the... So he, he's not going to feel the compulsion to not further burden the literary landscape with more, you know, same old, same old, because his... He's bringing, at least identity-wise, a fresh take on all of this, right? An outsider's perspective is the thinking, right? Is that kind of... More or less, yeah. I mean, you know, he is writing at a moment where, goes without saying, it is a very good moment to be somebody who looks like Brandon Taylor and who has Brandon Taylor's uh, various identity categories. It's a very good time to be that person writing literary fiction, right now because everybody wants to support writers who are quote-unquote marginalized but they also don't want to publish anything that's not maybe familiar right like it's kind of known yeah this is kind of the best of both worlds you know here we have you know a series of um kind of it sounds like 
I won't say Roman Aclef or like thinly veiled autobiographical novels, but certainly like novels that take place in a certain sphere that is very familiar to people in these literary communities. Um, we, this guy has written three of them, and that's obviously something... Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a popular topic. You know, you graduate from the Iowa MFA program, and then you write novels about people in the Iowa MFA program. <laughs> this is not a new thing. And it's a bleak one. I don't know. I find this very... Oh, it, it does not... The, the idea of, like, these kind of school-produced novels that are basically, like, for other people who've been to those schools. I don't know. To me, this just doesn't seem very... It seems very limited in terms of the scope of society covered in that type of fiction. Obviously, there's other fiction. Like, Kat, your your most recent novel, which I really enjoyed, um, does not take place at an Iowa MFA program. No, but nor would I be able to write from experience with an Iowa MFA program because I don't have an MFA from Iowa or anywhere else. But do you have a large estate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was gonna say, that's why I write about murder, which I do have lots of experience with. I figured as much, you know, (laughs) starting to put it together, you know, I figure writers write what they know. And surely, um, you wouldn't dare appropriate <laughs> murderer. Like you wouldn't culturally appropriate murderers' experiences. No, absolutely not. I it would be very problematic to do that. <laughs> yeah, no. Actually what I got was a bunch of murderers to sensitivity read my books to make sure I got them right. <laughs> All right. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Where would uh, one find such a person? Um, but okay, so like a, pr- a prison work program <laughs> that's like <laughs> sensitivity reader. <laughs> For mystery novels and thrillers and so forth. Yes. That is an amazing idea for a novel in and of itself. Uh, I'm going to write that down. And okay. So the story with Brandon Taylor, now that we've got all of his background, this recent novel called The Late Americans, which I now wrote down in front of me, so I won't forget (laughs) it again, um, did receive one negative review. Uh, One. One. So, So one. Run. Um, this review was in Slate by the critic Laura Miller. And Miller's headline of her review is, Brandon Taylor's online writing is vibrant, funny, and true. Why is his fiction trying so hard to be something else? We're going to link this review in the show notes. Read it in full. It's um, delightful in the way that negative reviews often can be it's not like a hatchet job it's just um more like a fine blade sliding under somebody's skin and wiggling around and driving them crazy (laughs) (laughs) but uh my favorite line from this review which miller is describing the behavior of the characters and why the uh the book itself is kind of you know not there's not enough plot and there's not enough story to kind of drive it forward she writes they spend much of their time in cafes and at parties being mean to one another in conversations where the simplest statements are weighted by tons of fraught and exhaustively detailed subtext Reading these scenes is like watching someone dissect a croissant flake by flake. <laughs> That's a, um, a representative so, bit. So, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm trying to find where on his Twitter, because he, I don't follow him, so I don't remember where this was, but like, he had been sharing a lot of like praise he got, you know, and then there's this. Oh, yes. So first, the first thing you need to know is that before Brandon Taylor weighed in on this, people got very mad about this review on his behalf. And the reason why is that the premise of the review, per the headline, is that Brandon Taylor is quite brilliant on Twitter. He is witty. He's funny. He's sharp. He gets an enormous amount of engagement. His long-form writing is not this. And the question was basically, or rather the thrust of the review basically is, this man is brilliant in one medium and he's not in another. Mm-hmm. So Sunny Bunch, I, I, I've put the link into Twitter to search the the responses it got. And Sunny Bunch, um, I believe a conservative journalist, yes. Um, not super conservative, but somewhat conservative journalist. He's a sort of a uh, centrist and he loves movies. He actually has excellent taste in movies. I'm going to give him that. Well, this was this is a pretty 
Good tweet. Uh, you were trying to think of a meaner thing to write about a novelist than an essay length version of, quote, his Twitter account is better than his fiction, which is just awful. So I think that sums it up, kind of. Um, but then to the criticism, there's Malcolm Harris, another big presence in the writing world, but more um, on the left of things. And he describes himself as a Cal- California communist. Okay. He writes, uh, he tweets, I should say, because that's not writing. That's, well, or is it? That's what we can discuss. Um, uh, the only thing, sorry, the only people who are truly, quote, good at Twitter are like that one with the squirrel avatar and menswear guy. I'm sorry, but it's gauche to even mention a professional author's Twitter account in a review. Yes, gauche. Oh my God. I love it. You don't want to be gauche. Okay, Chris, question. Do we agree that it is gauche to mention a Twitter account in a review, which I'm actually going to come out and say right like right up front, I have done this when I reviewed uh, Lauren Euler's fake accounts for Tablet. I mentioned her Twitter account because it's um, a huge part of her online presence and her presence as a writer. And I felt that it was relevant, especially because the book itself is extremely online. But anyway, that's my dirty lens. So Phoebe, go ahead. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what's relevant here like as i see it it's this whole issue of is twitter writing or not is people is posting so let's bring we're gonna open this up it's not just twitter although twitter is the sort of relevant medium in this sort of world but let's say somebody has an amazing instagram or tiktok or whatever it is and that you know so like friend of pod lee stein you know book talk she talks about this you know but what happens and maybe we should ask her sometime if somebody's book talk is better than their book without the talk like this could happen and I think the whole thing with posting and this is what um Laura Miller's review is about is kind of how posting what in theory it's something writers do grudgingly to promote their work and this is kind of her the essay she writes the review is really like what happens when the posting is better when the posting kind of uh, when the student becomes greater than the master, or whatever you know, what happens when the yeah, what happens when the posting is better than the the content the posting is there to promote? Yeah, I was trying to think about if there's a pipeline. You know, like on the one hand, you have people who are great writers and terrible, reluctant, clunky social media users. On the other hand, you have people who are excellent social media users but not great writers. And I don't think you hear about that a lot. I think you hear about like Joyce Carol Oates being both or, you know, Stephen King being both. You hear about like people who are famous writers who also use social media. And it's this kind of novelty that you see them in, you know, this huge figure will just or Margaret Atwood, super active online, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I think this is the first time I've seen anybody write this sort of bluntly about what happens when somebody's like <laughs> really huge on Twitter, you know, not just good at it, but like a really successful user of Twitter. And then maybe like the writing doesn't quite match. And I, I think that's interesting. I found this interesting as a review. And I, I thought this was just an interesting thing to think about because a part of me interpreted this as like, while Twitter is writing, you know, it's a type of writing and there's no, maybe like there shouldn't be shame in somebody being extremely good at it. It's unfortunate that it's not, you can't monetize that exactly. And that the only way he can do so, he can, the only way he can kind of monetize the, the renown he has from his Twitter is through other things that he may not be as good at as Twitter. That's, that's weird. That is sort of true, but I think it's also, God, I'm going to kind of like yes and, but also disagree. That's the best. Go for it. Okay. So what what I'm kind of circling right now is that number one, well, I do like this essay. I like this review because I like that somebody is actually treating Twitter and treating posting as a medium unto itself, uh, which I think it is. You know, it is possible to be very good at it. It is also possible to be very bad at it. And I, I think it's really, it's not gauche to mention Twitter, um, especially in the context of somebody who spends so much time on the website and has so much output there and is obviously like getting so much engagement and is really good at what they're doing on Twitter. Um, I don't think it's gauche to mention that. I think it's treating it with the seriousness that it deserves. It's like, 
this man is spending an enormous amount of his time on, you know, creating posts in this medium. So maybe we should, you know, <laughs> honor that. Even if he claims it's not serious or other people claim it's not serious, you know, like there's what you say and there's what you do. So there's that. But the other thing is, can he monetize his Twitter output? Not on Twitter per se, although, you know, now there's like the thing where you can upgrade yourself to a, I don't know, super, super tweeter or something like that. But nobody who's from the Iowa white writers, I can't speak, writers workshop is going to find dignity in, in having the like, whichever colored check mark. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's cringe. And so they would never do it. Um, but the thing is, too, that for writers, because it's so difficult to make a living actually selling books, one of the few ways that you can really move copies, and I've seen this happen, you know, many times, is to have a big following on a given social media platform, people with whom you have this parasocial relationship, or rather who have a parasocial relationship with you, to surround yourself with this kind of cult of personality who will support you, who will buy what you make, um, not because it's good, but because it's you who made it. And so I do think that you have, you know, a decent number of people who are making a go of it as writers or as content creators in some other way by cultivating that relationship oh yeah oh i totally agree i totally agree and i have bought books because i have followed people on twitter and liked their tweets i've absolutely done this um or i've taken them from the library both you know it's this is um a thing of course because how else do you find out about writing you know one book review gives you one person's opinion about a book but if you've been following directly somebody's writing for years and you've liked it and then there's is like you say this parasocial um Although also a bit social, right? Like if let's say somebody has the, the big important writer has interacted with you in a positive way, maybe, you know? Yeah, I mean, another thing I want to bring up, though, is I'm looking at these tweets from people who um, are very mad about the book review. And something that a lot of them have in common is that they are from people who are writers themselves and who are not so much in their heads about Brandon Taylor himself but about if they're thinking about as all humans tend to be doing themselves and they're like, oh, my God, what if this happened to me? What if somebody judged my tweets instead of my incredible books? Right. Like that seems to be the either subtext or in some cases text text of a lot of the tweets It's like, you know, wouldn't it be terrible if what I'm doing right now is what I was judged by? Yes. I mean, it's enough to give a person pause. I was just thinking like, do I really want, you know, when my next book comes out, somebody to compare it with my Twitter presence? And um, honestly, no, I'd prefer that not happen. On the other hand, um, you know, this is a, a mess of my own making. I could always not be on the website. But um, yeah, there there is a sense of, you know, people saying like, well, what if, what if this is the norm now? What if somebody does this to me? I also think that a lot of the hand-wringing over this though really um, goes back to this idea that you know Brandon Taylor is a very popular guy on Twitter. Uh, people he, he is surrounded as as is the case with many um, writers who are marginalized, quote unquote, in some way. Because I mean, well, we're gonna we're gonna get to this, but I don't think that I don't think Brandon Taylor qualifies as marginalized at this point, like in the context of the literary community. But but you know, people who share his identity categories, there is a real desire, um, like on literary Twitter, and you know, it like more broadly, not just on literary Twitter, but but in progressive leaning spaces, to be seen as an ally um, and to you know come out in fierce defense of anybody who is a quote-unquote marginalized person who is perceived to have been slighted in some way, especially when that person is in fact very, very popular and you can gain a certain amount of, um, I guess clout is a decent word, um, you, know, you know, positive attention for positioning yourself as their defender. It makes you adjacent to them in some way. Yes, the sycophants often white in the replies of certain very famous black women writers, um, I have seen I have seen this phenomenon. Yeah, it's a thing. I think it's a thing. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think so. When I read this review, I did not see it as being about race. 
No, no. Race is not mentioned, but Brandon Taylor is black. And Laura Miller is white, which I don't think I knew before this whole thing because I had not thought about who Laura Miller was beyond that she's a name I have seen. Yeah, and she's been doing this a long time. She's not um, She's not just like a white woman. She's she is 63, I think, years old uh, or somewhere around there. Yes, I just Googled who she is, and that's how I know what she looks like because I didn't know. Yeah, and she's been doing this a long time. She's one of like very few literary critics of this kind of old guard, you know, who who tackle fiction in a more kind of a critical way, um, you know, where they don't frame everything through the lens of identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, she's one of few people who still does this. So would you interpret her review as basically being a comment that if you're a gay black man, you should stick to tweets and not write fiction? Do you feel like (laughs) that was the gist of what she was saying? Would that be a fair assessment then of what she said in this book review? No. (laughs) Okay. That was not how I interpreted it either. Uh, No. Because that would be bad. That would be a, a a racist and yeah, yeah, obviously. But what she's a, what she's saying is, if you're good at Twitter, then it's disappointing when your novel is not as good as your tweets. Right. So what I think is interesting, though, and this gets back to what you were just saying about people wanting to be allies and so forth, is that it could be that Brandon Taylor is good at Twitter, but also there is this zeitgeist where you get a certain number of points if you're a certain type of perhaps white person who does not in real life have a ton of gay black friends to sort of feel like well like you're sharing the stuff from somebody who's of an identity that is not perhaps all that present in your own day-to-day life and I'm thinking a lot about it's, it's very much like the bookstore that had in a very white neighborhood that has in the window only books by writers of color Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's something i've seen yes and i mean people do this with their own bookshelves or when they announce like i mean you'll see this all the time like this year i'm only reading women writers of color i mean it's just a it's a thing that people say and it's one of these things that i've always found really interesting i I really am curious how many people who make a post like this or make an announcement like this actually follow it up by doing that well maybe they're just not reading that much and they've (laughs) like the one book they read that year was you know it just seems like, I mean, yeah, there's there's little time to read in the first place. And like, if you're reading women writers of color, especially given the output right now is, um, is all quite identity focused, like, you know, that just means that you're kind of consigning yourself to reading like novel after novel about racial trauma. Well, it depends. It depends what if, if you're really doing it in that kind of like Instagrammable very now way, then yeah, you do end up with like books from the last minute with a certain general idea. Um, yeah, so this was interesting. I mean, so then Brandon Taylor weighed in on this, and that I think we should we should get to. Yes, so, um, you know, maybe three or four days into the discourse surrounding this review, um, Brandon Taylor actually weighed in. He was not happy, he was not satisfied with the pushback to the review. He felt that it was taking the wrong shape and moving in the wrong direction. So a lot of people were supporting him, and I think this is important, but yes. Yes, yes. I saw very little explicit support for the review and a lot of explicit excoriation of Miller for, you know, for being bad, for being, as we said, gauche. Okay, this is Brandon Taylor on Twitter. He wrote... I feel like if you are going to moralize about the response to the article creating a hostile environment for real criticism without also moralizing about the underlying racism, classism, and homophobia that is the real objection to the review, then you are also racist. The (laughs) issue is not that the article is negative. The issue is that the article is racist, LOL. You can't just write it off and say, oh, it's based on a ridiculous premise. Say what is ridiculous about the premise. Say it. It's almost as frustrating and bad faith as the article itself. So. Well, he, he lost control. What's super interesting about this is how he lost control of two narratives, right? First, he was unable to make the world, the entire world, including Laura Miller, care about his novel more than his tweets. And he was unable to get the people who were ostensibly supporting him to be doing so in the terms he would have preferred. So that's, he's frustrated. Yes. Right? Yeah, clearly. Um, which is interesting because I'm trying to think of how to set this up because I'm sure like 
it really sucks to get a negative review, like no matter how many positive ones you have to balance it out, like been there. I know how it feels. Um, oh, I've I, been there too. I, know, I mean, I, know. I would certainly, I would certainly love it if my negative review were balanced by positive ones in the New York Times, the Washington Post and Harper's Bazaar uh, as his was, but you know, whatever. I understand. I understand. That said, I do think that Taylor's presence online and I you know I, I hate to talk about his Twitter account um, which obviously he doesn't want anyone to do but he is somebody who can kind of find the cloud in every silver lining um, the flavor of his tweets and this has been the case for a long time is very much centered on the idea that he like doesn't feel he really belongs, that he has imposter syndrome, that he struggles to feel like he's good enough. And I, I think that he does fixate on not just the negatives in a given situation, but on how those negatives reflect um, what he has decided is uh, hostility to his identity on the part of the literary world. Does that make sense? I think so. And I think I'm sympathetic to an extent because I think the literary world is in this weird place. And this is where I might bring up, even though I have not read it, although maybe I will read it. I'm kind of interested to read it. Um, this new novel, Yellow Face, which I've only read about, that's um, it got this big write up. Was this in the Times? I think where like it's satirizing the publishing industry and all of the white women in the publishing industry and how could that get published and things like obviously that could get published because this is this is the self-flagellation you know yeah those those women are masochists everyone knows this (laughs) but what i'm thinking about here is like the way um the same industry can really um be boosting writers from certain backgrounds but also tokenizing those writers and it can all feel a bit like this is the trend of the moment is to care about a gay black man and what he's up to and that next week it's going to be something else and nobody's going to care anymore and I think it would be frustrating to feel like the same reasons you're you know and also the whole and society itself has not I don't think become one where you know gay people, black people, gay black people in particular, I I think they are still discriminated against in all sorts of day-to-day ways. So I think you end up with this thing where there's like, on the one hand, this kind of weirdly patronizing and tokenizing veneration, right? That can coexist with, you know, either exclusion or just sort of, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's complicated, right? So I don't think it's that the world has become suddenly an unambiguously welcoming and positive place for somebody like Taylor. I think it's more that it's a weird place probably to be as a writer at this point. If you have a background that the, you know, the publishing world considers interesting at this moment. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, and it's entirely possible. I think that Taylor did not anticipate this um, or anticipate what it would mean when he first went down this road. He has always leaned into identitarianism. Um, my my first exposure to his tweets, and this was like, it must have been 10 years ago, um, or certainly close to that, was a video that he had recorded where he was talking about how he had had an incredibly racist encounter on, it must have been his college campus, you know. He did not say, he was not explicit about what had happened. In fact, it was like intentionally ambiguous in a way that I made me really wonder at the time. That was like, wait, what? Like what actually happened here? What is he talking about? But he is kind of like leaning on his hand, uh, you know, very close to the camera saying like, I just encountered so much racism. I just can't um, like, you know, I feel like I don't belong here. And then he kind of lays his head down on his desk and he says, I'm so tired, y'all. And it was really funny because obviously that's become almost a meme at this point to be, you know, to to be so worn down that you're just exhausted all the time by, you know, the identity leveled hostility at you. Um, But yeah, I, I think he has leaned into this and he has, you know, where possible, used it to his advantage. and So he's not ambivalent, maybe. Well, I mean, like, more power to him, you know, because I think it has been useful to him to, you know, like, if you end up in a scenario where somebody of your background has an opportunity, like, to be really celebrated on that basis, 
I mean, you would have to be kind of an idiot not to go ahead and take it. I mean, people get unfair advantages all the time. Like, is this one any more unfair or any, I don't know, any more fraught? Um, but I do think he has put himself into a place where now, like, having achieved a level of success that, again, most writers can only dream of, he can't enjoy it. Ooh, interesting. Um I have so many thoughts on this and I don't know where to begin. I mean, one is just like, so just to get back to his specific response about the review and that he called the review racist. And he said that if you don't object to it for the right reasons, you're racist too. Right. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that the, mm -hmm. those are strong, strong words. And um, yeah, it, it did seem like it, to me, that seemed interesting just as an attempt to control how other people receive information and interpret information, you know? was part of it but also just like to call a reviewer racist for like I, to say that is basically saying if somebody doesn't like my work the only possible reason is that they don't like who i am identity wise which is yeah i don't think that's a road that's great to go down because i think i think there are plenty of like there have been plenty of reviewers who have said, you know, like when a woman writes a book, like, oh, people are only, you know, it's a lady, lady book, silly lady book, you know, for the <laughs> ladies. That has happened, you know, and the racial version of this, the overlapping intersectional versions of this. Sure, this particular review, it's really a hard case to make. But then, you know, once it's been made, if you don't agree you know, well, what does that say? Hmm? Right? Yeah. I mean, here's a question. Like if you, okay. So if you thought the review was, um, you know, deeply offensive, but not racist, are you, are you more racist than a person who thought there was nothing wrong with the review to begin with? I almost wonder if, if per those tweets, which I am now Talmudically parsing. Yes. Because I think the idea is if you're mad for the wrong reasons, that's not good. That's the real problem because I think it, it does come back again to this thing where I think a lot of the people who were upset about the review were making it about themselves and were you know and some of those selves were not gay black men it would be fair to say um yeah but then the other thing I wanted to talk about is like what does it mean to be marginalized which um is yeah it's a complicated one because I I do think I'm gonna be the woke baby okay can I be woke, baby? Imagine me as a cartoon character in a board book. Um, and what I'm saying is, yeah, I think that even today, black people, gay people, gay black people in particular are marginalized. And I think that there would be situations where even a very successful, you know, professionally accomplished gay black man would have it tough. I think that's, you know, sure. I don't find that hard to wrap my head around. Do I think that you're marginalized in the literary community at this point if you have an identity that it's not just so when I we talk about his identity, I would include this has been to Iowa Writers Workshop and is literary professor, you know, is writing professor. Like to me, that seems part of his identity too. And yeah, I, I just I I think isn't it it's is it Alex Perez who writes about this? Like about if you have certain identity traits but talk about this versus that you know like I think there are certain narratives that sell and certain narratives that don't and I think if you have either a tragic story or a sort of like a trauma story or a very familiar sort of story but for the identity categories of the people involved like the sort of graduate student group mm -hmm. is that are these marginalized narratives that's another question you know Right, right. Yeah, I think the question is, you know, even if we say, yeah, for sure, there are places in which a gay black man is still going to have a hard time on the basis of being a gay black man. Is Brandon Taylor hanging out in those places? Um, does, you know, how often does he have a contact with a place like that? And number two, is this review one of those places? And is it reasonable to allege that it is? I mean, I think it's entirely possible that he personally, I don't know what, who, which, like, I don't think anybody is that sort of hermetically sealed from, certainly not anybody who isn't a billionaire. It, nobody's that sealed off from the world. And I think he's going around, you know, physical space, presumably like everybody else. Um, and I don't know 
what what's happening in day-to-day life for him paris probably it's a whole different world um and that's neither here nor there but like i'm thinking specifically in the states i i don't know you know i think i I don't feel like i could really comment on that as for the review though that i do feel like i could comment on and yeah i did not i'm I'm struggling to see like i'm looking at and thinking do i have a blind spot am i missing you know the the subtext here where this was actually a reviewer saying that um nobody who's a gay black man should go beyond tweets and it just it's not there that's not there at all and this seems very much like like if you imagine that the writer just same writer but a straight white man the review would have been the same like there's no reason to think anything would have been different about it and i've seen reviews like this not about twitter but about like oh another one of these like grad students hooking up with each other who cares like that's not that's not exactly the, if anything, this is very much the type of review that a straight white male sort of buzzed about writer would get, you know? And if anything, this is like extremely equal treatment, I think. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So the, there's one other thing that has occurred to me, and it has to do with, um, you know, what kind of alchemy has to happen to make a person really popular on Twitter and really good at Twitter, but not be able to replicate that in another medium. And I think that it's important to consider that Twitter is inherently a social media. Like that's what it's called. And there's a reason for it. It is about not just performance, but engagement. You know, you are doing this for an audience and there is real time feedback and you are, I mean, the people who succeed at creating a cult of personality around themselves in the way that Taylor has done, you are in certain ways winning a popularity contest, you know, like, and I think that it makes sense that a person who is very, very good in that particular medium at, you know, and at curating that particular type of presence would struggle to have that same spark in a medium that is inherently lonely. Like you write a novel by yourself over the course of many, many months, if not years, you know, you are like, you're not getting feedback. You may have a writing group that gives you like a limited amount of, but it's not, it's not the way it is on social media. You're not getting instantaneous, um, not just feedback, but validation that what you're doing is good. And I do think that if you're a writer who's very good at Twitter and you get used to the not just putting out your work in that medium, but getting back that kind of response, Mm -hmm. um, that you can really struggle when it comes time to go into your cave to write your novel. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about this like, I've thought about this in the past in terms of prompt tweets and the, um, what's her name? The one who was always doing the prompt tweets. And then she went off Twitter. Nicole Cliff. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I've always been bothered by that because I get the sense that people are giving away their best material on Twitter and not just prompt tweets and not just, this is nothing specific to Nicole Cliff, but just this idea that like you have a thought and you're you become, and I, I say this of myself too, sort of prime to put it onto Twitter, a certain type of thought. If you're on Twitter, you share it there because it's that's what you do with it. But that these same thoughts, I feel like, yes, articles or maybe even novels could come out of a tweet. But on this, at the same time, I think, oh, I don't know how to put this. Like, you're you can be throwing stuff away into this ether you know into the void and maybe what you have to do if you're a writer who uses twitter is sometimes just shut twitter (laughs) have your word doc or however you're writing open and just the thing you have the impulse to put down put it there you know because i think some of it is that people get more used to writing short form and having the immediate feedback but i think it's also just this like that becomes where you put things and maybe it shouldn't be yeah. Oh, I had, I had something that I was thinking about saying, but I don't think I'm going to. I think it's too much feelings projection on, on Brandon Taylor. I don't want to do that. So um, I'm going to, I'm just going to leave it there. Well, speaking as Brandon Taylor, having, you know, put myself into his brain. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Don't worry. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I even though I'm not a fiction writer, I, I get it, kind of. Like, I would I want to be judged by my tweets? I mean, yes, actually, I think it might be better. No, just kidding. I don't actually... But it's also different because, I don't know, does he also write, like, essays and other longer writing that isn't fiction? I don't I don't know this about him. Uh, I think maybe occasionally, you know, as most writers do, but I don't really know him as an essayist. I've also not read his books, so I can't speak to whether... I cannot think of any generous interpretation of why you have not read his books. It has to be offensive and terrible and... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't either. I haven't read his books either. <laughs> well, for, you know, for the same reasons, obviously. Yes. Both of yes. us deeply offensive yes. reasons. Well, I mean, I am going to take inspiration, though, from Brandon Taylor. Um, you know, since it seems that we can now kind of contrive the least flattering explanation possible for why a person doesn't like our books as novelists, um, I'm going to just follow his lead. And I'm going to say that if anybody out there has read one of my books and didn't like it, it's because you're a virgin who can't drive. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I don't think I have anything. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. That's, oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Oh, I should have saved it for a book. And you just threw it out into the podcasting ether. Um, yeah, you know. That's all right. I think podcasting's different, though. I feel like it's not the same because you, you're sort of thinking about the stuff in real time and talking about it's different than having the impulse to write something down at your computer or your phone, whatever, and choosing to put it on Twitter. I don't know. Right, but. right. And uh, I mean, I will say, I don't think I've really ever had a stroke of genius on a podcast. Oh, come on. When did you say problematic or pro problematic? Problematic areas. Areas. Was that on the podcast? Yeah. Then I think that, okay, then, then I think that that's, that's, you know, it's downhill from there. For okay. Still chasing that high, just like with the mushroom. <laughs> I peaked early. <laughs> has this been feminine chaos? It has been feminine chaos. If you liked this conversation. And, and like if you want to hear about more tailors than just the one. Yeah, you want to hear about more tailors and fewer mushrooms. You can join us on Substack for $5 a month. You will get access to exclusive episodes for premium subscribers as well as early access to our public episodes access to our entire back catalog of episodes and um participation in a community if you so choose of like-minded feminine chaos enjoyers that's right that's it okay please do please join us and thanks for listening thanks bye bye